This is Mary Celeste Bell. Welcome to the Blackberry Podcast, where we'll dive into stories and knowledge of the incredible people that are part of the Blackberry story. You'll hear from longtime friends, amazing visiting personalities, and our own inspired team members. The Blackberry Farm Pro-Am Classic explores every aspect of cycling. In part one of four featured discussions from the 2019 Pro-Am, Dr. Alan Lum and Dr. Kevin Sprouse dive into the details of nutrition and how cyclists fuel their bodies for optimum rides. If you know our cycling pros, you know they're full of personality. Just a little warning, there are a few words in this episode that aren't suitable for children. Enjoy! Uh, I started cycling uh, because I needed a way to get around Los Angeles. <laughs> it's like, I was an immigrant kid and we had to get around. So, you know, the bicycle is a tool for social mobility. Holy shit, it's the fucking best thing ever. And that led to racing bicycles. Los Angeles is surprisingly an awesome place to ride bicycles. I ended up at Junior Nationals when I was 16 and I caught George Cappy's wheel and he just rode me around. Just rode me around. And I ended up getting dropped on the final climb, but I, I, I still finished fifth that year. And it was scary because George could shave and I was like, what the hell is going on? <laughs> but then I went, I, I, wasn't, I was never into waking up early or suffering. So I went to school, um, got my PhD in exercise physiology. Um, my PhD project was working with a team to develop a rear hub power meter that turned into a product called the PowerTap, which was really cool. Um, and that got me through Robbie and, and Sarah Cycling Group connected to Floyd Landis. That was a total shit show, but holy shit. After therapy and a lot of trauma, I learned lots. <laughs> Ended up uh, with um, Jonathan Botters and the young Slipstream, TIA, Craft Garmin team. Uh, we built what is now the Biological Passport, so had a lot of you know great things happening. And then I, you know, I took a job with Lance, Lance Armstrong. And I was pretty convinced that he wanted to do his last tour clean. And I was willing to actually give him that chance. Um, but when I came home from that 2010 tour, waiting for me at my place was a cadre of federal investigators. And the gig was up. Um, I lost my job. I had no income. Nobody would hire me. Nobody would touch me. Even my old professors at the University of Colorado, because of the association, were just flip in their shit about the PR mess it made for CU Boulder. Um, during this time, athletes were asking me if I would still make the sports drink I used to make for them, and I had nothing to do. So I would, in my free time, go to the hardware store and buy these food-safe paint buckets, pre-mix these ingredients, and I would use the paint shaker in the hardware store to make the sports drink. I'd put it in a foil bag, and I would sell it you know, to my friends, and this was the only way that I was making money at the time. Um, and slowly and surely, this morphed into Scratch Labs, and we call the company Scratch because it's our belief that food and drink is better from scratch, but also that no matter where you find yourself in life, you can always start from scratch. Nice. nice. I've got to follow that? <laughs> Mine is not interesting. <laughs> Yo, you told him to go first. <laughs> yeah, it's true, it's true. No, <laughs> I did too. It's um, crazy. No, so I got into pro cycling a little bit differently. Um, I started off uh, undergraduate studying exercise science, exercise physiology as well, and then um, went off as a backcountry guide for three years and kind of dropped off the grid, and then decided I had to grow up. So I came back, went to medical school, and didn't really know how I was going to tie in the exercise science part to medicine because unfortunately um, there's not a lot of uh, exercise science in medicine, a lot of prevention and performance and um, it just doesn't show up in medicine in the U.S. much. And so I ended up going into emergency medicine because I liked the, the, the thrill of it and also the wide variety of stuff that we would see. So did emergency medicine, and then um, to answer your question about how I got with EF in particular, I'll stray a little bit. So I was, I was, uh, I think it was second year of emergency medicine residency, and I was 
in the cardiac care ICU. And I had a patient that um, had an ICD that would shock his heart every time he'd, he'd basically his heart would go into V-fib. It would stop, it would shock him. He'd come back. There was nothing we could do to prolong this guy. He was gonna, he was gonna live until one of the shocks didn't work. Like we'd done everything we could do. And I was a second year doctor, had no, there was no reason I should be managing that. But the fellow didn't want to come in, the attending didn't want to come in, it was overnight, whatever. So it's like, just take care of it, there's nothing more to do. So I sat there with the guy for the overnight and finally they said, well if you hold a magnet to it, you know, it'll turn it off and then the next time this happens, he'll just go. So I had the conversation with the guy, he decided that's what he wanted to do, he had no family. Um, so we sat, we held the magnet over and we sat and we talked until it happened again 30 minutes later and, and he passed away and it, it, was, it was a big thing to go through, right? So I go home, having been totally unprepared for that and having dealt with that, I go home and I plop down on the couch and I'm watching the tour because I'm a cycling fan. And so I'm, I'm watching the tour and uh, it was one of those things where I was too tired to fall asleep. I'd been working, you know, 36 hours or more. Um, and so I'm sitting there watching the tour and they interview the guy who's the head doctor, Prentice. Prentice. Stefan. And they're interviewing him and he's telling his story about how he's an ER doctor and we had some crossover. He trained in New York and he had done some of his training in Tennessee. And I was like, well, that's interesting. I never thought about that as a job. So I emailed him and he responded and we got in touch and we stayed in touch for a few years until I was doing a sports medicine fellowship and they needed somebody to be the doctor for their um, development team, which didn't pay anything. Um, and I talked to my, my faculty at the, at the fellowship and said, hey, could I do this as an academic program, go to these races in Portugal and Uruguay and wherever else, and you know, will you guys continue to pay me while I go do this and then write kind of reports about it. Um, so they let me do that. And then at the end of the year, they needed somebody for the, the tour of Switzerland, the tour to Swiss. And I showed up there with Christian and Dave and Ryder and just kind of started doing that. So 10 years ago, yes. Wow. And, and what is your job at the Tour de France? What, what, what does it include? At the Tour de France, I mean, the, the tour is different than a lot of races. Um, so I'll get to the Tour de France five days before the race starts and there's a lot of kind of checking in with the guys. Um, there's mandatory blood work that's done and then reviewed by the UCI and it's a health check so we're making sure that everything is, they're kind of ready to ride three weeks. Um, what are they looking for? Uh, they're looking at blood counts, they're looking at um, so hemoglobin, hematocrit, um, iron status. A lot of it, to be frank, is a holdover from years past and it was more of a doping check. Um, it probably doesn't serve much of a purpose at this point. It's too late in the game to, to do anything about it um, from a health standpoint and we will have done stuff on our end prior to that but it's a it's something we have to do. So we get there, do that, there's sponsor obligations, there's just kind of hanging out, getting ready, going over nutrition. Some of the guys have different nutrition protocols um, and just kind of teeing them up for the start of the race. And then during the race, I typically ride in the first car, um, hopefully stay really bored, but if something happens, it's the place where I can get out quickest and, and help out. Um, after the race, it's kind of you know, meeting with each rider, uh, debriefing their performance, how they felt, uh, their nutrition, any aches or pains that came up, just anything pertinent to medical and performance, and getting up and doing it again the next day. Are you doing anything on the prevention side, like remember you started the squirt in, squirt out? I mean, are you doing anything like going to the hotels and making sure the air conditioning, or, or is that someone else? Uh, we do some of that with air filters and whatnot, and some, some will change. Like, it seems like there's a new something to do each year, um, a new hype. Like, some teams have teams that go in and, and, and sanitize hotel rooms, bring in mattresses, sanitize the bus, um, and the what you get from that, the return on the investment for that, both in time and money, is so small. It's, it's more disruptive for logistics and for the riders. So we try, to, we try to go for high yield things, which a lot of times is not the sexy things that are gonna, you know, Velo News isn't gonna do a story on us. Um, 
but it's just real basics, making sure the hand sanitizer's out at the table, making sure that um, you know anybody who's showing a little bit of sickness, even from a staff standpoint, if they're sneezing a few too many times or coughing, like they're in their room and they're getting room service that night. They're not coming down to the rest of us. Um, it's just being hyper vigilant with those things. And then you know we've talked about some of the sleep monitoring technology. Um, so we've got riders that wear things like the Aura Ring or the Whoop Strap, and we look at their, their sleep, we look at trends across nights, um, and if we see two, three, four nights of decreased recovery, we start to address that with maybe a change in meal time or a change in uh, room temperature or something to, to get them sleeping better. It varies a little bit, but if, if you look at the studies, it's anywhere in Fahrenheit from about 62 to 68 degrees. Let's talk more about the recovery stuff after Alan gives his, his, his presentation here. Yeah. But Alan, you got a little presentation. We're going to talk about supplements. We're going to talk about ketones, all this stuff that I know you guys are excited to talk about. But Alan wants to get Yeah, here's my, my experience is that when nutritionist talks, things can go south so fast <laughs> that we wanted to establish at least a little bit of, of, of philosophy before we started. And this talk is basically uh, dedicated to Lori Ventura. This is actually the everything Lori Ventura taught me about nutrition. <laughs> brief. It's a brief. Uh, but I, I, let's start with you with this quote from F. Scott Fitzgerald. He says, the test of a first, first rate intelligence is the ability to hold two opposing ideas in one's mind and still retain the ability to function, right? Because so much about nutrition and performance seems like a contradiction and it can be a contradiction there are so many extremes out there in terms of ideas and thoughts and opinions and you know if you just take a look at nutrition there are two basic ways that you can think about it in america we primarily have a technology orientation around our food a technocentric orientation where we talk about you know calories fat protein ketones you know um we reduce everything down to its parts and we try to optimize all of these little parts. But there's this ethnocentric way of thinking about nutrition as well. There's a cultural way of thinking about nutrition. And that cultural way of thinking about nutrition is when your mom puts down a bowl of noodles in front of you, you eat the fucking bowl of noodles, right? Like, you don't ask any questions. You don't ask, like, how much sodium is in this bowl? You just put it in your mouth and you shut up. Um, and for the most part, I grew up with this ethnocentric way of eating, not this technocentric way of eating, you know, the Italian way of eating, etc. Um, so this contradiction exists between science versus practice. There's what the scientific literature is saying, which is always constantly changing and always needs to be vetted. And we establish things as an average where none of us are ever average, right? And then there's the practice. There's how do you actually execute this on your own? How do you actually do this? How do you actually make this happen? And so what it kind of boils down to for me is pragmatism. and. Pragmatism is really simple. It's when you're looking through a magnifying glass at a pile of shit, it's a pile of shit, right? <laughs> if something makes you feel like crap, it's crap, right? Don't put it in your mouth. Um, it, it's kind of that simple. Um, you know, one really important topic around food and around health, around performance, is I think that for me, when I was first getting on the Pro Tour and there was a lot of isolation, especially in the height of the doping era, was this issue around loneliness as well. Um, the Framingham Heart Study, which is the longest longitudinal study on heart disease in America, showed that next to smoking cigarettes, the highest correlate to heart disease was self-reported loneliness, whatever that means, right? But the issue is this, is that where cigarettes come with a warning label, loneliness does not, right? It's a massive issue. For me, you know, this idea of loneliness or lost connection, um, there's no better example of this than what's called a Skinner box, right? And this was something that uh, Don Catlin at the UCLA Anti-Doping Laboratory introduced me to because as we were trying to fix the sport and create the biological passport, he was like, dude, your issue is not testing. Your issue is how do you connect these athletes and get them out of a cycle of addiction. In the Skinner box model, you have a isolated rat and it's given an option between water or say cocaine laced with water. And guess what happens? Any guesses? 
yeah, the rat uses the shit out of the coke. <laughs> like, it's just high all of the time, right? And it uses so much drug that it eventually will just die because it doesn't want to do anything else except use cocaine. But there was a psychologist named Bruce Alexander, and he thought to himself that this model seems um, not quite right. And so he invented something called Rat Park. And Rat Park was this vibrant community of rats. They had a lot of toys they could play, they could commune with one another. And he gave them the option for both water, plain water, and cocaine. And guess what happened? Well, they used a little bit of cocaine on Fridays, just to, <laughs> you know. But they drank water. They didn't use the Coke. And what was really interesting is he could take a, a drug-addicted rat from a Skinner box and put it into Rat Park, and this, this rat would rehabilitate itself. It would get back into community. Which, ultimately, for me, brings me to one of the best pieces of advice that I ever got about taking care of uh, pro riders from Lori Ventura. Lori, have you ever had a lead-in that dealt with coke and then went straight to you? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So I asked her once, I'm like, how do you, like, how do you take care of this family? You know, like, what do you do? Like, what's important? And you said, well, you know, if there's an emotional breakdown, if something's going wrong if it's not going quite right you tell everyone to halt and that stands for are you hungry are you angry are you lonely are you tired right and then you begin to solve them one at a time if you're hungry you feed them if you're angry you talk it out if you're lonely you get a big cuddle puddle if you're tired you go to bed you get some rest right and there's no better example of that for me than this idea called commensality which is the act of eating with one another Right? When we get together and we share food and we're able to have that community, we get it all. Right? If we're hungry, we satiate that. If we're angry, we can talk it out. If we're lonely, we have that community. We have those bonds. And if we're tired after a great meal, it's the best rest ever. Right? And so I think that while we're going to get really technical about nutrition and different ideas, what my experience on the pro tour was this, that when we made athletes eat together, they always perform together, no matter what it was that they ate. Yeah, yeah and, and, and having, a, having a foundation is what's so important. So we can get into all this, the technocentric stuff, which is fun, and it's useful, and knowing how to, how, how to use some of these strategies and different tools is, is great, but if you're not nailing the basics of good food, community you know people like to go to nutrition as something that you know if you had a bad ride oh my nutrition wasn't good you know my legs were like felt that cramp feeling today a few times and I thought oh maybe I should eat and I was like no maybe I should be in better shape for this right but nobody nobody wants to think that it's what can I do nutritionally to, to fix my legs yeah so it's you know these things are basics, which doesn't mean they're simple, they're just foundational. And then we can move on to the things that are maybe a little more sexy. That's right, when you talk about bang for your investment, right? Having a great chef and having great food at the tour, that's big bang for your buck. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Does every team have a chef now? Yeah, and hands down. And nobody just uses the regular stuff? No, just, how, the, how just the staff eat the regular stuff. <laughs> How complicated is it? Yeah, how complicated is getting these riders fed at the Tour de France? It used to be pretty complicated. You had rice things all over the place. People wouldn't accept Yeah, them. it was really complicated before we decided to start building out food trucks or food vans or whatever they were. And before we hired um, Olga and Sean Fowler, who still actually work for EF. So I was able to hire these two great chefs, and Olga still works for yeah. EF. Yeah, um, She's great. and and. You know, now the trucks are, they're huge. They have slide outside. Some have dining rooms in them. Like it's, it's gone next level. Ours is still a sprinter van with a commercial kitchen in the back. And, you know, it's pretty simple, but our team does not. Some teams do. Okay. And what's the most important components of nutrition at Tour de France? I think control of the food for the sake of quality and sanitation, um, most important. Uh, because you go into some of these hotels at the tour. I mean, we stay in some really, really nasty places at the tour. Um, 
I've I've turned down my bed and had blood on my sheets on the pillow. I have had like just some of the worst. Not the scene for cottages. It is not, and the kitchens look the same way. So you go into these kitchens and they are just filth. And so if you can control the if you can control the sanitation of the food, again, not the most sexy thing about the chefs, but that's where we're getting bang for the buck. What about the nutrition thoughts across all the teams? Is everybody kind of on the same page no. now? Because it used to no. be really, Italians would eat pasta, these guys would eat this, the Germans would eat, I mean, is it still? There's still big cultural influences. Um, and I don't think it's at the point where it's right or wrong, but again, it's, Nutrition is full of dogma however you look at it. Um, whether you get super scientific or whether you're talking to one grandmother versus another grandmother, right? And, and there's reasons for that um, because lots of things work, right? So if, if you look at an Italian team versus what a French team is doing versus the Israeli team versus our team, you're going to see widely different practices. But at the base of it, we're all trying to bring clean, healthy, whole foods, enough calories. You know, it's, it's the foundations are the same, but they'll all argue over how it's implemented. And, and this is where the extremism in nutrition for me is so interesting because you see something like the Tour de France that is so demanding and you see athletes from so many different cultures with so many different beliefs about eating who are eating so differently and yet they're all performing yeah. at relatively the same yeah. level. It makes you realize that making too much about what you eat is, you know, a lot of just wasted time because if all of these guys are surviving it, right, then what was really special about the food outside of the fact that they believed in it, it made them, you know, happy Right. Um, so I talk about food a lot as being something, especially when you're working that hard. Does it make you adonically happy? Does it like bring a great amount of joy to you? And if you're, you yeah. know, ass has been handed to you all day long and you sit down at that dinner table and it's just this delicious meal that brings you comfort and joy. Oh, I hear these conversations at night where the guys are, you know, were sitting around after dinner and they're like, all right, is tomorrow the morning we want to ask Olga to make pancakes or do we want to save it? Do we want to do it two more days? Like, and they get all excited for, you know, pancake day or whatever it is. Um, so it's, there is a joy there that, you know, we know this is coming. When do we want to have it? Are most of the guys on the same team at least eating the same thing? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Because before, remember the whole gluten thing? You had to make separate meals for Zabriskie and all this stuff? Yeah, and that's where it started to kind of get out of hand, where it was just like, look, guys, this is turning into a total shit show. And until we can actually prove that these marginal gains are real, then to, yeah. you know, to, to the point of marginal gains versus bottlenecks, you got to invest in the bottlenecks. That being said, you got to also experiment. You got to try things. You got to trust the athletes and their responses. And so, you know, there were two years where we did all grand tours gluten free. And, you know, a, three of the athletes, you know, they thought it was the best thing ever. Three of the athletes, they thought it was the stupidest thing ever. And three just didn't care. Right. So you always, you always have, you know, maybe a bell shaped curve of sorts. Mm -hmm. Are you calorie restricting them or like limiting what they? So, yeah, this is, this is an interesting difference between teams. So there are teams that will weigh everything they give the riders. And they'll look at, you know, kilojoules burned during the day. They'll look at all these metrics, weigh the riders before and after, and then, like, basically dose their food. Um, we don't. And, and we actually end up trying to make sure the riders maintain weight throughout the, throughout the tour. Um, Rarely we'll have some guys putting on weight. It's usually water weight, and that's that's a different issue to deal with. That's bloating and inflammation and some other stuff. Um, so we do keep an eye on them with regard to how much they eat, but it's much more of a, you know, is this being excessive? Are you going back for your third plate and your fourth dessert? Like, we need to talk. Um, <laughs> but in general, it's like if you're really hungry and you just went and had a, a a big plate, you know, pot or plate full of great, high-quality food, and you sat there a minute, talked to your friend, you're still hungry, go eat a little more. Um, and that tends to work out a lot better, and you, you don't have the price of stress that 
comes with you know, weighing everything. And, and here's the deal. How, how do we know, right? We're, we're not giving these guys doubly labeled water and measuring isotopes to figure out how many exact calories yeah. they're burning. And if these athletes can't trust how they feel and respond to that, we don't have the technology that can match that, even though scales work pretty well, right? Or that we can measure the power out, but there's too much going on in the process in terms of how many days have accumulated? Are they injured? Yeah. Are they not injured? Do they what's have their good... metabolism outside exactly. of the Exactly, you know? yeah. That's, that's four to five hours of the day, but there's a lot of other time that it's not accounted for by their training pile. What about uh, ergogen, oh, sorry. Oh, well, you've talked quite a bit about you know, dinners, meals, that kind of stuff. What about on the bike eating? Yeah, um, I mean, there's differences and variances on what people will eat and what they don't, what stays down, you know, what doesn't stay down yeah. for different riders. And yeah, it's totally individual. And I think that because of that, you need to have a pretty ample buffet of many different choices and varieties. So, like, you know, it's everything from uh, options for both savory and sweet solid foods, whether that be bars, whether that be rice cakes, whether that be, you know, little sandwiches, whether that be pastries, whether that be just cut pieces of fruit, whether that be little boiled potatoes. I mean, you need to have those options. But then there are, you know, gels, there's sports drink, uh, there are high carbohydrate uh, solutions if it's cooler and guys are starting to get in, into trouble. And everyone has, you know, maybe a slightly individual response. You're trying to give um, riders as many options as possible so they can manage themselves. But the, I think the short of it is, is that at least at the highest level, if these guys are getting about 100 grams of carbohydrate an hour, they're going to probably generally be okay. It's about 400 calories or so whether that comes from liquid or food. And then depending upon the temperature or the heat, you know, it shifts between say, you know, solid versus more liquid carbohydrate, right? Yeah. Um, generally speaking, what I tend to find is that lower sugar sports drinks with solid food tends to be the right recipe for someone who is really GI tract sensitive, um, but that individuals who don't have many issues and have big old small intestines and can absorb a lot can you know as long as they're just consistently eating and getting that fluid and hydration as well as sodium back in uh they're good and really fundamentally it comes down to what are you losing when it comes to you know fat salt carbohydrate fluid replace what you lose and i just want to remember first time we met at one of these four or five years ago, what you said is in your products, you put the simple sugars in because as you described it, if you've got a, a team of nine guys or gals, at least one or two of them will have sensitive stomachs that can't break down the complex molecules that go into maltodextrin. Yeah, or, or actually what happens is they break down, they break it down too fast, right? So with a simple sugar, what you see is what you get, the molecular pressure, uh, which what is what drives the movement of water across the small intestine, either into the body or outside of the body. It's already broken down, so what you see is what you get. Um, and you can keep things at a lower concentration than blood so that water always shifts in. Sometimes with maltodextrin, if you put too much of it in a solution, um, as soon as you begin drinking it, all of that, that complex carbohydrate um, starts to break down in a bunch of little pieces. It increases the molecular pressure inside your gut, and that starts to draw water into your intestinal lumen, and that's where people get GI distress. The analogy is this, is molecular pressure is really hard for people to understand, this idea of osmolarity, but it's essentially how many seats are in an airplane. And if a seat has 300, if an airplane has 300 seats, let's say water can hold 400 passengers, well, there's a maximum amount of people you can put on this plane that all have seatbelts. It doesn't matter if they're all heavy or they're all skinny. So you can load a plane up with 400 sumo wrestlers. That's a super heavy, calorically dense plane, or you can load it up with 400 skinny cyclists, right? Maltodextrin is, are like sumo wrestlers, right? But if you put a bunch of sumo wrestlers on a plane and mid-flight, they all start giving birth to triplets right you have a total mess on your hand and so you see carbohydrates yeah 
and, and that's what can, can happen in the gut. So you, you have to be aware of like, what is this outside of the body versus what does this look like once it's digested? And what something looks like after it's digested can be very different than what it looks like before you put it in your mouth. Um, you know, to that end, a lot of these complex carbohydrates are now moving towards breaking down uh, slower. Like you can use as a waxy maze that um, doesn't digest as fast, right? Um, Martin uses uh, sodium alginate, which is a type of, uh, which is seaweed that, that tends to protect the cleavage zones and uh, tends to hold it up in the stomach a little longer before it enters the small intestine. Um, We've been prototyping a product that will come out next year with EF all year that was basically, it started out as a waxy maze, but we made it super long. Then we put a bunch of branches on it. So this is way techno. And then we curled it into a really tight ball so that it would digest really slowly from the outside in and wouldn't explode inside the, the gut. Um, and seemed to work pretty well this year. Yeah. Is that gonna be a product? Uh, yeah. Probably beginning in March of next year, we'll release it. But it's been about um, now about almost 12 months of testing and um, a whole lot of testing with EF. Sorry to stick on this. Kevin, maybe you know the answer to this. If you don't, Alan, if you had to guess what percentage of the Pro Tour teams mostly rely on complex, really complex carbs like maltodextrin versus the simple sugars like what's in Scratch? If I had to guess, I'd say there are more teams that are using more of the complex carbohydrates and very engineered drinks. Um, I also I don't know that they're connected, but I also see when riders come from teams that, uh, that I know are sponsored by companies doing that, they tend to be riders who will have one or two bottles of mix, so the carbohydrates, and lots of water. So in other words, they they kind of self-select and realize, I, I don't like a lot of that stuff. I'm going to stick to water. And then we have to kind of get them to understand that what we're using is, a, is very different. And, and using it regularly throughout the race, even just constantly, is perfectly fine. Anybody else? Good. Um, how about, so let's talk a little bit about supplements. The, the guys at the Tour de France, are they having beetroot? Are they having a big bowl of beets on a regular basis? Are they? experimenting with ketones? Are they dealing with, uh, you know, beta alanine and all these things, these ergogenic aids that people, um, you know, there, there's some things that work, some things that don't. How have you guys distilled that down and, and used that sort of stuff? Yeah, so with, with a lot of these things, um, you know, you look at beetroot and, and the idea behind that as increasing you know, nit nitric oxide production and kind of using a food to create a or, or, or to encourage a process within the body. Um, and then companies will say, oh, that's great, let's concentrate that, put it in a juice or a powder or whatever. Um, we tend to say, well, let's use that food regularly. And you know, we've got a chef and we've got some control over that, so um, you know, they'll eat beets regularly. You know, most people don't recognize that arugula has much more capability of producing nitric oxide than beets. There's just not an industry around arugula. So we may do a salad that has arugula and beets. Um, so we tend to stay, try to minimize the supplementation and really go for whole foods. That said, there are some places that supplements can make a, uh, a big difference for people. I don't think there's many, and you can correct me if you think differently, I don't think there's many that are just widely applicable. Like everyone should be taking this. Everyone should be taking that. It's more looking at a rider and you know, we'll do blood tests and look at things like iron levels, vitamin D levels, vitamin B levels, um, and see who's, who tends to run low on certain things and say, hey, you need to be taking this or change your diet this way and also supplement with this. So it's much more targeted. Uh, we've also seen with supplements in the last couple of years that there's probably a, 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 a good rationale for not taking um, say like a, a multivitamin or something full of antioxidants at certain times and then there's rationale at other times. So uh, what I mean by that is there's, there's a difference in adapting to your training and then recovering day after day. At a race we're trying to recover day after day so that they can immediately be good enough to go again at full strength. That's a scenario where uh, taking 
like a multivitamin or antioxidants can make sense because you're trying to turn down those inflammatory markers, those reactive oxygen species, and allow yourself to get back to normal quickly the next day. If you're at home training, that training stress and those reactive oxygen species that are created, that inflammation, is actually kind of a good thing. And it's, it's what we've learned is it's signaling your body to make these changes, these, these improvements to deal with that. And if you just get home and pound the antioxidants, whether that's, you know, tart cherry juice or or you know a handful of multivitamins whatever you may be shooting yourself in the foot so a lot of it can be situational yeah there's this incredible evidence with especially non-steroidal anti-inflammatories yeah. but likely also with all of these antioxidants because they actually have really strong physiological effects but if you say injure or let's say you just train right there's always a little bit of damage there's always some inflammation you get cracks in the sidewalk right and that signaling causes your immune system to come in, tear out that sidewalk, and build a bigger, stronger sidewalk, which actually sucks because it, it's painful, it takes time, it's, it's, it, it's not an overnight process. But if you take a lot of these anti-inflammatories, you get patches in the sidewalk that allow you to continue, but you don't build a better, stronger sidewalk. Yeah. So patches are great in the Tour de France, but not day-to-day. It's not binary, so it's not true with one, untrue with the other. It's more like if you're taking a, a low dose of something, a lower dose, you may be getting some of that effect, but not all of it. Um, there's, again, you know, I think doing some testing to see if there's a reason for you to be taking it day to day makes what, what makes more sense. Of the Every day, all year? Yeah. I'd have a hard time knowing. I, I would guess 50%. Like, I think this, this is not, um, you know, in the sports medicine world, this is something that's kind of high profile over the last 12 to 18 months. So I think m- most, most of us in this position, if they're staying up on it, have probably changed practice. Um, but like with ketones that we'll talk about in a minute, I think there's a lot of people who maybe haven't stayed up on that. So I'm not sure. You guys want to go CBD or ketones? Ketones. Oh, and there was a question that I cut off. I'm sorry. How nutrition changes your age? Like, I never got cramps 20 years ago. And now, like, well, you know, it happens well. Yeah, well, so if you take the example of cramps, most of the research would say it probably has nothing to do with your nutrition. Um, in fact, you know, there's maybe some outlying cases where, where nutrition plays a role, but most of it is more... Uh, fitness and the like not overall fitness but the fitness of the muscle to handle the the task you're throwing at it and our muscles do um, I don't want to say break down as we age I mean they do on on the on the longer scale it's not like we're destined to some you know falling off some cliff physiologically but you know what you what a given muscle could handle now versus 20 years ago is going to look different and that may manifest as cramps and maybe here's the gripe of aging right it's like your mind is now stronger than your body right yeah <laughs> so you can still push yourself plenty hard right but you but know. nutrition has changed vastly i mean nutrition is the science behind nutrition is really difficult because it, we don't get the same quality science that we get in, say, pharmaceutical studies because you can't take a population of people, isolate one nutritional variable for an extended period of time, and then retest at the end. It just doesn't work that way. So we end up doing questionnaires and associative studies and, and studies that look at um, you know, physiologic uh, uh, mechanisms for why something might work. Um, but a lot of it's not causative. And even if you look at things like you know, DNA testing for athletes uh, with regard to nutrition, there's no causative link there. We're looking, at, uh, we're looking at associative measures, right? People who have this DNA tend to do well with this type of food. Doesn't mean they will. And a lot of athletes who start to have problems, we had an athlete this year, started to have problems with his digestion and all that stuff. He's roughly 30. Uh, did DNA testing. I was like, oh, well, I can't eat corn. I was like, have you been able to eat corn for 29 years? 
yeah, your DNA didn't change, right? Like there's maybe some value in that, but it's not that causative if this, then this. Um, we see that with the whole boom we saw in uh, uh, stool testing. You know, we were talking about this, looking at the microbiome and okay, athletes who are really at the top level tend to have a microbiome that looks like this. And then we started saying, okay, well maybe if we alter that with, uh, with probiotics or fermented foods or aim for that type of microbiome, then we'll see better performance. But then we find out, well, stool testing really shows us what's going on in the large intestine, but isn't so great at telling us what's going on in the small intestine. So there may not be a great correlation there. Um, we thought we were at the cutting edge of science, and as we learn more, we realize, oh wait, we're not there. So it changes practice. Um, it doesn't mean it's useless. Yeah. yeah. It doesn't mean it's useless information, but in nutrition and in, in this type of this type of testing, you 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 don't want to just latch on to like the latest study. And again, we can go back to ketones, um, because very you know, within the next few years, you'll likely be shown to be wrong. So if you go back to the basics and that foundational stuff, build off of that and, and approach the rest with a very measured and uh, somewhat skeptical approach, I think you end up with a better result. Yeah, and to nutrition and aging, here's a example that kind of changes everything about how we think about it from a technocentric perspective. When you look at blue zones, these parts of the world where people live past 100 years old, where they have the greatest amount of health and longevity, and you ask them, how do you eat? They say, well, I've been eating the same way my whole entire life, right? They, they stick to a diet that is, has a cultural basis, and they eat that way for the next 115 years, Yeah. right? Yeah. You know, when you're talking about the validity, what we're learning with the science about things like your microbiome, yeah. I guess the question I had, and you alluded to iron earlier, are you finding that you are getting good results from tests you do on athletes that have varying needs for substances like iron? And do you do that? And where are you seeing that going in terms of, because I totally take Alan's point about the blue zones, but you know, when you're talking about world-class athletes, they're kind of pushing their bodies to the limit. And where are you seeing ways that you can do interventions with testing of your elite athletes to potentially identify, you know, personalized interventions? Yeah. So if we look, iron's a great example. And so I, testing for iron status initially, like the, the, the initial screening test, really easy and cheap. Right, so we can run. We can look at blood counts. We can look at ferritin levels. We can look at a uh, an iron panel, and we can see. Okay, is somebody are they really low in iron, and do we need to address that? Is it something that's impacting their performance? We can then address it through diet changes and supplementation. Recheck if it comes up and their their numbers are better, and they're feeling better, and they're performing better. Great job done. If it's staying down, then you have to look at. Okay, is it a, a, an absorption issue? Is it the microbiome? Um, and that's something to delve into, but oftentimes it's what I've found is it's more a matter of balancing overall catabolic breakdown, recovery, versus the anabolic effect of you know, taking that time off. And so before I even go down the, the path of absorption um, for these athletes, again, different population than like maybe a clinical population that's showing up in a, a, a GI clinic, right? Um, somebody who's been performing well and all of a sudden their numbers are dropping, their iron's dropping. Oftentimes if you just say, hey, continue this, this iron-rich diet, a little supplementation, and let's take a week off the bike and just let your body build its stores back up, then recheck, it's popped back up. So oftentimes these markers we look at are really proxies for the bigger picture. Um, and if we get too myopic on the granular details and think that, you know, with science we can surely figure this out and step back and just say, okay, this person's really tired. Let's let them just recover a little bit. Then, then we'll see the improvement we're looking for. What's your thoughts on uh, CBD? I have no idea. <laughs> and, I, and I say that with a lot of humility because the, there just isn't the scientific evidence yet for yeah. that when I mean, we're talking about this 
earlier. And do you want to speak to some of the science? Yeah, I mean, what's that? You printed out this beautiful, I read your article on it, it was great. Yeah, I wrote an article, like a, like not a research article, like a, just a kind of review article. Um, so the, the, the science that's out there on CBD is far, it far lags behind the hype. If you, if you look at the hype behind CBD, it will cure everything that could possibly ail you, right? It's, it is the, the latest snake oil. That doesn't mean that there's nothing there. And I take it occasionally, and I'll tell you why in a minute. Um, so the science that's actually out there in, you know, in human studies, there's not a whole lot, but there's a lot happening right now. So hopefully that'll tell us something. But we see that there's probably some benefit for anxiety in some folks. There's probably some benefit for sleep in elderly populations. Like we can say that it's been shown to help in those scenarios. And past that, it's mostly mouse studies, which can be. Um, Did you say mouse? Mouse, yeah, what happens in mice, yeah. right? So what tends to happen with, with studies in mice is that the, the lay press picks up on it and it blows up, right? That, you know. CBD cures inflammation. That's great in mice with a certain genetic makeup. Like it's a good reason for us to keep looking at it. Doesn't mean that it's going to play out for people. Um, and even like even within people, there's subcategories, right? Like we were talking about athletes versus a clinical population. Um, you really have to get specific if you're going to say that there is evidence for something to work. And right now, to say you know, CBD's been shown to fill in the blank. You probably either don't understand the science or you're blowing smoke, right? But there are certain things that you can extrapolate. So if you look and say, okay, there was a study done that showed that CBD helps in nursing home patients with sleep. Maybe there's something there. Let's look at it in sleep. And then you take something like a sleep monitoring tool, like the Aura or the Whoop, and you say, let's, let's see if it helps me. And we, we can say pretty confidently that CBD is safe. So that's like the first barrier that I want to put out there. Like I, I wouldn't recommend testing things if we can't say that it's safe. Um, but CBD seems to be a, a very safe thing for people to take. Re reasonable doses, reasonable person. So what I've found for, for me and for a large number of my patients, not all of them, is that a dose of CBD at night will increase their deep sleep, which can be problematic for a lot of people, especially when you're looking at recovery. Um, the body recovers at night during deep sleep, if you grossly simplify it, and the mind kind of recovers and formulates, stores memories uh, in REM sleep. So you want to you want to get a good amount of both of those. And people, especially people who are pretty stressed and have you know they're they're burning the candle at both ends, tend to have less deep sleep than they need. And so it's somewhere that with my patients, I'll say, let's try it at night. Let's measure it, see if it's impacting your deep sleep. And if it is, great. If it's not, toss it. Um, so I think we don't have to throw it out because the evidence isn't there yet, but we want to be measured with it and make sure that we're not just hopping on a, a bandwagon. And here's what's crazy. There's so much technology that exists right now in terms of self-monitoring that you can turn yourself into your own experiment. Yeah. Like, and at the end of the day, you can't believe the average. You can only believe how you personally respond. And so if you want to be disciplined about it, you can find an answer. Yeah. Right? Do you have an aura ring? Do I? Do you both? No, but I got a wicked pillow. <laughs> so I would, I would urge a little bit of caution with CBD. Just so full disclosure, uh, I'm a physician. I yeah. work with a couple of PhDs, one in genomics and one in physiology. And we're making, we have a CBD that we make. Um, because of that, and we do the same thing with our patients. We say, try it. It works with the ordering. If you're ordering great. If not, yeah. it's too expensive. Don't buy it. Yeah. I'm talking to a lot of researchers who are starting to produce some of that research Right. Liver function. Yeah. It doesn't mean that you're going into liver failure, but it's just something that we're watching. It goes. It used to be very 
diabetics, because we specific SNP called FAAH, they like how you metabolize it, and then we'll follow LFTs too. I think that's the safest route right now for somebody. And our patients, it's working for them incredibly. Pain, sleep, multiple things, but we want to watch those LFTs and look at their genomic scores. It goes back to the whole idea of monitoring, exactly. That you, everybody's going to respond a little differently, and if, if you're gathering that data, you know, and with like with my patients and with our riders, we're doing at least every six months we're getting LFTs, among other things. And so having that and then looking for the changes, I think, is important. But this begs another really kind of interesting idea about nutrition and performance is that are we trying to fix a problem like pain, like not sleeping well, or are we just trying to get better to get better for better sake, which ironically might actually make us worse? Yeah. And is, is the problem with pain or lack of sleep or whatever is the underlying problem a lack of CBD? No. I mean, we, we probably we probably need to look. <laughs> we probably need to look at what's leading to those things in people. And and most of the time, with with chronic pain, it's not it's not structural damage. There may have been structural damage initially, but I mean, this is getting deep here. But like. We try, going back to the idea that I was cramping and my problem wasn't nutrition, a lot of the times that, a lot of the things that we look to fix with supplements, the problem isn't a lack of that supplement, it's something else. And it's fine to use it to help with symptoms. And, you know, I, I totally agree. And, and helping to sleep when that's something that you can, you can manage. But then taking the time to step away from that and say, okay, what's the underlying problem here? How can we address that? Worst thing I ever said in my life, friend of mine she asked me do these jeans make my ass look big <laughs> and i was like no but your ass makes those jeans look big <laughs> sorry exactly what what's the underlying <laughs> sorry yeah I, I got hurt after it was a mistake no don't please so rv can't go through that again. Have you guys used ketones in your? Yes. I've been I've been talking to you over the phone. I put a quarter in Alan like at least once a week and ask him about different things. Um, with all this, a lot of the athletes they want to know. They read about it in cycling news and whatever. First thing I do is either call you or I call Alan. Yeah. And, and tell them what your response was. Well, I, I've only had one athlete who I who I have actually we've gone through it and done it in training and. And, and tried experiments and played with different protocols, and that was TJ Van Garderen. And I think we learned a couple of things at the end of the day, right? One is that like anything being marketed right now, there is not one single holy grail that makes you better, that you have to look at everything as holistically as possible. And it's just one maybe piece of the pie that could have some benefit but it's probably marginal. And I say it's probably marginal because even with TJ, for him to still go really, really well, he was highly dependent upon carbohydrate, right? So we could play with ketones in training to satiate appetite, to main, help regulate you know, his blood sugar for a longer period of time, to caloric. Yeah, so, so ketones are basically the byproduct of fat metabolism, right? Mm -hmm. And if you're in a starving state, and you're basically only utilizing fat as your primary fuel source, you're gonna increase the level of keto acids in your body. Um, that's not necessarily a good thing, right? But you ultimately get to a point where your metabolism does shift, you become extremely good at utilizing fat as a fuel source, and you're not moody and hangry, hangry anymore, right? Um, you, you, you break through, and so you can do two things. You can either starve yourself or caloric restrict, which has a lot of benefit in terms of um, training adaptation, or now you can actually take um, exogenous ketones, which at least in the short terms seems to have the same effect. And there was a study that just came out that showed that uh, with a particular protocol that there might be even some improvement in recovery. Right and detriment to performance. So, so some of the unpublished data. So this this is why I think this topic is interesting, not for the sake of ketones, but the sake for the sake of looking at nutritional science. Um, so I think in 2012, uh, 
exogenous ketones, these, uh, these ketone esters, were developed, or at least were started to be, you, yeah, they were developed at Oxford, and, and uh, the UK Olympic program started using them with the idea, Team Sky may have used them too. They, they say they know nothing about them. Um, uh, but with the idea that it could be a third fuel source. So you could burn carbohydrates, you could burn fat, and you can burn ketones. And so it, was, it, it could act as, at the highest level of performance, it could act as a nutritional safety net. If you hadn't, you know, if you'd missed a bottle somewhere, or if you hadn't got your nutrition just right, well, you had this third source of fuel to dip into. And for years, that's kind of how ketones have been used in, in professional sports. About six months ago, eight months ago, um, a Belgian uh, researcher published a study that showed we're probably going about it all the wrong way. That using it that way was actually creating an acidic environment um, in the serum, in the blood, that was not dangerous. I mean, there's this argument that, oh, you know, people hear about DKA and, and diabetics, and they think, oh, this is going to be terrible. It's, it's not going that route, but it's going a little bit down that route to the point that if you go into a, a climb at the end of a ride with, uh, at the end of a stage, and you've, you've said, okay, one hour climb's coming up. This is the big stage. I'm going to take my ketones now and then hit this climb. My fuel will be, I've got my fuel safety net. The problem is you just decreased your buffering capacity to the point that you're gonna be more acidic halfway up that climb than your competitor who didn't do that. And what they've been able to show in, in their data is that there's, in that scenario, using it that way is likely detrimental, detrimental to performance. But what they saw is if it's used after an event, on a day after day training, like something like the Tour de France, that it looks like there's a recovery benefit and it actually decreases some of the markers of overtraining and allows someone to recover better day after day. Um, and then because of that, kind of perform at their baseline day after day. So what that means is now no longer taking it at all while you're on the bike, but taking it you know, when you finish and then their protocol was again before bed. And, and it looks like it's more of a, a, again, going back to this idea of signaling, it's more of a, a, a signal to your body to be more efficient with using resources overnight and how you recover without getting too deep into it. Yeah, that signal may ultimately spare carbohydrate, right? Right. So what's really interesting there is, you know, if you happen to be at the pointy end of performance, it changes everything about how you use ketones. And you kind of laugh at the guys you see in the Peloton who are throwing back their ketone bottle mid-race, like, ah, he, he didn't read the study. How did you guys use it? We used it using the protocol in the study, which was to use it post. But a year ago, before that study had come out, we had been using it during. And using it during didn't seem to cause much of a difference. And that's where we learned how important carbohydrate still was to him being able to do really hard end of day performances, right? It didn't, it didn't change end of day performances, but carbohydrate certainly did. And, and, and it reassured us about getting ample carbs in. You know, what's interesting is while ketones are trending, the same exact purpose or reason of having a nutritional security blanket and, a, you know, a fourth fuel source or a fourth substrate potentially to use was what the thinking was in the, in the late 80s with George Brooks from Berkeley. And he invented something called alpha polylactate, right? Because mm -hmm. he thought, wow, we could use lactate, which is normally a byproduct of you know, uh, carbohydrate metabolism and use that as a fuel. It's good for the brain. It's, it's a great fuel for the heart and for uh, a lot of muscle. And so he invented alpha polylactate that turned into the product Cytomax, right? Um, but, you know, it never really took hold, um, especially in an environment where, where carbohydrate was still, still ample. And so... N not in an exercise setting because. But it's still blunt, so an exercise setting, you want intense, you're going to dip into your glucose and your liver. It's going yeah. to blunt that, so you won't drop, but you won't get the rise with your body. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. So your top end may, may go away as well, right? Yeah. Yeah, and that's, you know, people think of cycling as a, as a long ultra-endurance effort, but it's actually a lot of kind of you know, very sub-threshold efforts with some big intensity in there too. And it doesn't, like you're saying, it doesn't suit that. So, I mean, I think for me, the take home from that is one, the science is really interesting, but two, again, dogma two years ago is, oh, if you're on the cutting edge, you've got to be taking it this way during the race. And two years later, totally different, right? So it's good to stay up on it, but you cannot get too tied to these things and you cannot hitch your wagon to them, so to speak. Robbie, what's your favorite pasta? Or a Chieti. And do you change how you eat cacio e pepe? Just a noodle once in a while. <laughs> Just a noodle once in a while. Yeah. Boom. Yeah. Okay, guys. Any more questions? Nope. We're good. Enjoy your meal tonight. Um, Just a heads up for tomorrow. Thank you guys very much. You guys yeah. are awesome. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Blackberry Podcast. Continue following the journey wherever you subscribe. Thank you to our guests, interviewers, and audience. Dive into more stories, videos, photos, and podcast episodes on blackberryfarm.com and blackberrymountain.com. Make a great day!